Hey, how's it going? I hope it wasn't too hard to find. I should have just said the garden's opposite NGV. No, 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 it was fine. I, I knew exactly where to go. Great. I'm glad that you came. Um, are you still keen to see a film? Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Shall we walk over to Acme then? Yeah, let's go. So what did you end up doing last night? Well, after you left, I was going to... Whoa. D- did you hear that? Hear what? I think that bust just said something. Sorry? The bust. That... that bust. Well, which one? The one with the beard on the right. But it looks like the one with the beard is on the left. N- no, but I swear it was just on the right. How? <laughs> I don't... I don't know, but I swear it just said, watch this. What? It said, watch this. <laughs> I don't know. It just said it, I guess, to me or the other one. Wait, wait. So you're saying that one of them said, watch this to you, and then by the time you'd alerted me to it, they'd switch spots? <laughs> yes. Well, I... I think so. Well, maybe they wanted to get our attention. Who? The bus? Who are they? You know, I, I know these statues. My grandmother always used to tell me how... how these were the two last classical sculptures brought to the Queen Victoria Gardens. Did she say anything about them talking? No. Just that they were replicas of Farnex Hercules and Belvedere Apollo. They got rid of all the others in the 30s when they became unfashionable. These ones must be bored. I mean, they only have each other to talk to for 85 years. That's a long, boring marriage. What about all the visitors to the garden? What visitors? The only reason people are here now is because of that M Pavilion. I mean, think about it. How bored would you be after 85 years with only one other person who ever notices or engages with you? No wonder they're playing tricks on everyone all the time. After all that, they finally have people to play with. Do you think... They know they're replicas, or do you think that they think they're, like, actual originals from Greece? Originals, given the way they're acting. If I knew I were a copy, I wouldn't be standing so proud and mighty like that. I'd be hiding away somewhere like a coward. You know, you're right. I mean, look at them. They think they're so much better than us, being a demigod and a god from classical Greece here in mere Australia amongst the gardens, named after a queen who never shot arrows from her chariot in the sky nor obtained the girdle of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons... All they do now for amusement is swap constantly to confuse passers-by and speak to people as if they weren't inanimate objects. Yes, typical European philosophical elitism versus anti-intellectual Australia. I mean, I guess it's fair enough. They have Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and we have, well, like, Larry Emger and Burjo's catchphrase. It would have been so much better if the art centre spire was clad in copper. What do you mean? Well, originally, the design was conceived with the spire covered in copper. The existing spire was just meant to be the skeleton. Really? The funny thing is, they realised they weren't going to have enough money to fund the copper cladding. So in 1961, they asked Victorian school children to donate all of their copper pennies. I think they collected about £3,000, which was an exorbitant sum at the time. Yet nothing ever happened with the pennies. Robbing from school children. Australia was all class in the 1960s. No, not really robbing. They just never told anyone what they did with the pennies. Apparently, there was this guy who had sent in this whole piggy bank and never got over what happened to his copper pennies. 
He would spend days concocting theories about what happened to them. Years later, he would often turn up at the front desk of the Arts Centre trying to inspect the documents recording the collection of the copper pennies. He was never allowed to see any records, and in the end, the guy became completely obsessed. All he wanted was to see his pennies used to clad the spire. He hated the spire with no cladding. I mean, it is pretty gross. But he wasn't in it for the money? He wanted a copper spire? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so eventually this guy got so aggravated that when he was 50, he commenced a campaign. He sounds crazy. Exactly. One would think, but actually, the thing the guy never considered was that every school kid at the time who had donated the copper pennies wanted to see the spire clad in copper as well. Okay, once this guy started his campaign, thousands of middle-aged people who had donated their pennies became involved. It culminated in him leading thousands of other middle-aged men and women dressed in their primary school uniforms down Swanson Street, waving flags and holding up posters with pictures of their piggy banks on them, chanting to get their pennies back. By the time the wave of people reached the arts centre, a crowd had a mass, like 50 people deep, underneath the spire. It was mayhem. There were literally thousands of people encircling the arts centre in a mob, racing up ladders like human ants to get to the spire. After about 15 minutes, there were a couple of hundred people scaling the spire like rock climbers. Each of them had a bag of their pennies and some glue, and they were sticking their pennies onto the framework of the spire as some symbolic act of gratification for having to deal with the cobbler's spire of 50 years. The problem with symbolism is that it never lasts. I'm guessing this minor, middle-aged revolution was unsuccessful, of course. Yeah, when it became apparent that the coins weren't going to clad anything visible from the street, the crowd died down and everyone left. In the end, it was just this guy who had organised it all at the top of the spire, cradling the plans of Roy Grounds' original design in one hand and a flag in the other. Supposedly, he stayed there for a week. Sorry, why? I, I mean, did this guy have a day job or any commitments at all? Yeah, of course he did. But he was an architect. he's here every day playing his mandolin it's not a mandolin it's an erhu a what an erhu a traditional chinese instrument but to answer your question i couldn't say i feel like he's here every time i walk past but maybe it's that i only notice that i'm actually here when i hear his erhu without the erhu i just don't think i even realize that i'm here well everyone loves that erhu guy and i just can't stand him His music just dominates the space every day. I I, I can't even enter the NGV, let alone think about it, without hearing this old man playing his bloody mandolin all the time. His Erhu. What? His Erhu? Whatever. actually saw an elderly couple yelling at Andy Warhol's camouflage self-portrait over at NGV the other day. Really? Yeah, but they were arguing about whether or not it was a famous painting. The man was saying that the work was, was famous, of course, but the woman disagreed and was yelling back 
saying that the work wasn't worth anything. They were getting about as angry at the artwork as people get at the football. What if that's how art was? Well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, art and sports change positions in our way of thinking. For example, everyone who was outside the NGV was there to see whether Ian Thorpe's technique was any good during his performance of 50 laps in the shallows of the NGV pool. So the sports precinct is the arts precinct and the arts precinct is the sports precinct. Hmm, continue. (laughs) The worlds are inverted. People watch athletes perform, not compete, and they debate the aesthetic value of the performance. Notions like time and distance become displaced by how the performance has interpreted elements of daily life that we struggle to express in words. Art becomes nothing but a competition, where victory is achieved by defeating opponents in their respective performances or exhibitions before the crowd. So, thousands of people get together at a football ground to see Sylvia Plath battle with Ezra Pound, each reciting their work. Everyone's on their feet, yelling... Half the crowd is wearing black in the southern stand in support of Plath and the other half wearing red for Pound at the member's end. Exactly. Art and sport are each other, but not what they originally were. For example, the MTC Southbank Theatre is a performance centre for gymnasts specialising in the horizontal bars, the white angular bars being circumnavigated by the gymnasts spinning around and around, hypnotising VCA students on a daily basis. They arouse whispers from the well-dressed students, critically analysing the form and shape of the gymnast's rotations. Someone brings a glass of Shiraz onto the footpath underneath and is chastised by an usher, advising that no drinks are allowed during the performance. Or at Amy Park, where the ground has been replaced by a pit of wet concrete and Chris Burden drops steel I-beams from a crane 200 metres overhead as Anish Kapoor shoots huge balls of paint out of a cannon on the ground in an attempt to hit the I-beams before they plunge into the pit at angles. If he scores and the paintball collides with the I-beam in mid-air, a plume of paint covers the entire stadium with flecks of colour inside and out. The stadium becomes like a multicoloured ladybird and the spectators, now covered in paint, dance and cheer wildly. Yeah, kind of. But Amy Park already becomes multicoloured without the paint. Granger. Is that the guy that built the museum dedicated to himself at Melbourne University? <laughs> yeah, the composer. His dad designed this bridge. Apparently the bridge doesn't really like it here. What do you mean? No, it moved to Sydney in the 80s. What? Yeah, I think one day in about 1986, a guy was walking under the bridge on the city side and some of the bluestone blocks connecting the arches to the Flinders Street bank just fell down in front of him. The man frozen underneath the bridge, just watched as the shallow steel arches above him dislodged from the bank and rose up. Having broken away from the banks, the bridge's spans began pointing up to the sky like huge concrete steel and brick wings as if ready to fly away. As this huge structure moved, bricks rained down on both banks, causing havoc with the rowers underneath. 
The cars that were stuck on the bridge had slid down each wing and had piled up in the middle section. The two piers in the middle of the Yarra split into four, like the legs of a trestle table, and rose up with the wings. The Princess Bridge had risen on its newfound legs twenty metres above its original position and appeared to start walking upstream in the direction of the MCG. The piers waded up the river as the cantilevered arches clipped the tops of the trees along Birong Ma and the boat sheds showering the banks with branches and leaves. The bridge built up speed, and to the people stuck on either side of St Kilda Road, where the bridge used to be, it looked like a crab scuttling away through the murky water. The bridge, heading north, built up momentum as it glided past the Nilex silo, which read 2.30pm. Wait, what? What happened to the bridge? It turned up in Sydney three days later and parked itself next to the Harbour Bridge. It said it went to Sydney because it had become sick and tired of the lack of recognition of Melbourne City landmarks and resentful of the ever-stifling treatment by its father figure, the Heritage Council of Victoria. It said it wanted to express itself. Fair enough. Why did it come back? It was only there a couple of weeks before it realised it was less important next to the Harbour Bridge than it was in Melbourne, where the lack of city landmarks was warranted. Hmm... Aesthetic appreciation is all relative, isn't it? Think about Flinders Street Station as an unfinished product. Don't you think it's weird how they use the 2012 competition-winning design? Yeah, I don't really get why they would change the arches so that it has a flat roof. It looks sort of mundane. I think they ran out of money early on in the piece. Typical planning department issues. I mean, there still aren't even enough trams. Look at all those people banked up waiting to cross the road to the Swanston Street tram stop. Think about Melbourne when there are 11 million of us. We're probably going to have to start employing people to cram passengers onto trams just so we can all fit in. Let's say this tram stop remains unchanged, which it probably will given the value the government gives to public transport infrastructure. The process of even getting on the tram would have to change dramatically given how many people would need to get on the tram. First, you would have to get in line to even cross the road to the tram stop. There would be these demarcated lines on the ground on either side of Swanson Street, and people would be employed to make sure everyone lines up properly. After reaching the front of the line and crossing the road to the tram stop, you would then be directed to another line, orderly of course. It would always be a person in white gloves and a hat pointing you in the right direction, pretending to be as important as those ticket inspectors used to think they were. Do you remember them? I always loved the leather bombacks. At the front of the line, whilst waiting for the doors to open, as I was saying, you'd be held back by another person in white gloves, whose job it is is to hold up the line until the passengers on the incoming tram are forced off. Due to the pressure from the bodies on the tram, a few passengers would stumble off, one or two fall. This would be normal to all the other commuters who wouldn't even think about assisting them. Once everyone's finally fallen out, the white gloves would wildly gesticulate for those in line to get on. The first few passengers could stuff themselves in amongst the torsos and limbs, and the rest would form a a kind of scrum, with even more white gloves bringing up the rear. But what about if you didn't touch on? Exactly. They would orchestrate the scrum, 
heads down, digging their toes into the ground, and slowly but surely shove the passengers in as best they can. Some commuters wouldn't be able to handle the force of the scrum and would bail out on the sides just before their rib cages are crushed. But the resilient ones would find a way of backing themselves all the way into the tram. The white gloves would complete the ritual by pushing the faces of the final commuters through the closing cracks of the door. The passengers' triumph would then be depicted by their squashed noses and cheeks pressed up against the glass pane.